Hello, you gentle Pendergrasts. Or Prendergast. How would you pronounce that fucking name? Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I believe it's... Are we 46? Week 46. I don't know if you can hear the difference in fidelity or, or the sound this week. I'm not in my studio. I am... I'm in a very, very fancy hotel room. In the middle of London. In Saha. I'm uh, in the Saha area of London. An area I know well. And I'm over here because I was interviewing the absolutely wonderful, magnificent director Spike Lee. And I'll be playing you that interview in a while. And... If you don't know who Spike Lee is, Spike Lee is an African-American director. He'd be one of my fucking heroes, because the man is a genius. Um, like, he's an auteur in that, one of these directors whereby he just, his voice and authority, it, it's, he's like a novelist. You know, his voice and authority takes supreme over all other aspects of the film. Cinematography is fucking class His storytelling is class The whole shebang If you're not versed in Spike Lee's films I would recommend You know Immediately watch Do the right thing um, Clockers Crooklyn Summer of Sam You know uh, Incredible films Even like just to show you how, how how much how much I adore fucking Spike Lee's work. We have a song called Fellas. And Fellas is it's it, it features an animatronic puppet of Gabriel Byrne and a puppeteer. And what I wanted with the video for Fellas, you can see it on YouTube, is to create a kind of what the song is about, it's about Accepting one's sexuality. But the protagonist in this song and in this video, they they aren't accepting their sexuality. And instead they act out their uh, they act out their homosexuality through a puppet of Gabriel Byrne. But I wanted to create an atmosphere in the video of kind of a creepy not creepy, but a seedy, seedy underground kind of gay club. And the cues that I took for that, when we were you know, like storyboarding the video, there's a scene in Spike Lee's Summer of Sam. It's a montage where the song Baba O'Reilly by The Who is playing. And Adrian Brody is working in, he's dancing in like a gay club, but against his, he's not gay, he's a straight man and he's doing this thing that he doesn't really want to do, he's uncomfortable in it, and he's effectively becoming a male sex worker, nothing wrong with that, but Adrian Brody in the film Summer of Sam is doing it because he needs money, and it's quite depressing, because there's not really consent under duress, if you get me. So, for this scene, like, Spike Lee directed this, directly took, like, the lighting cues, the mood, the colouring, the framing... And I put that into the video, fellas. So that's how much of a fanboy myself and Mr. Chrome are of Spike Lee's work. Um, the interview that you're about to hear, the reason it kind of 
came about is because Spike is he's got a film out in the cinemas and I think it's out on the 24th of August I could be wrong it's very soon I saw it already but it's it's called Black Clansman and it's brilliant it's genuinely now and I'm happy to say this it's his best work in a number of fucking years it's brilliant Jordan Peele who made Get Out is producing it and you can you can kind of see Jordan Peele's influence on it you can get that flavour that comic flavour but it is a Spike Lee film and or a Spike Lee giant as he calls it it's it's based on a true story but it's semi-fictional you know you can tell that certain facts are embellished for the benefit of entertainment but the one thing the film will do and this is what makes it art I suppose you know socially engaged art it can like it's the tr- it's the story of a black policeman in the south who successfully infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan and Topher Grace from that 70s show plays David Duke the leader of the KKK he plays it fucking brilliantly uh, but that's what the film is about but it's also contextualised in contemporary events in particular the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville last year that left one person dead and you will walk away from this film how I walked away from it anyway with a very constructive anger towards Nazis and white supremacists in, in particularly what the film does is it portrays how how easily Nazis and white supremacists normalise their behaviour by appearing by appearing acceptable by appearing to be respectable do you know and this film really it lets you see the snake in the grass and you leave with um, a good anger that makes you go no I'm not putting up with that I don't care if your views are being espoused in a fucking mainstream newspaper I don't care if you've got a shirt and tie your views are racist and I won't stand for it so that's what the film does that makes it an incredibly beneficial piece of um, socially engaged art even though there is a bit of um, criticism against it uh, in particular from is his name Boots Riley apologies if I got his name wrong his first name is Boots I think it's Boots Riley but he's uh, also a a director an African American director he's formerly from the band The Coop and he had a lot of problem with the Spike Lee film he felt that it was it wasn't historical enough in representing uh, the actual story it felt he felt that it gave the police a bit of an easy slip it didn't portray the police as being as brutal as they should be portrayed so that's a valid argument um, so anyway yeah uh, how did the interview come about Spike is in London and he's promoting this fucking film and through some through some bizarre things I ended up getting asked will you interview Spike for the podcast so I said I fucking will and the people who asked me have put me up in a lovely hotel in the middle of Saha which is great and that's where I'm recording this podcast so I went I went in 
the interview spike. Nervous as fuck, to be honest. Very fucking nervous because it's Spike Lee, someone I've been looking at. The films I've been looking at his films since I was about twelve. The reason Spike is so important to me is like as you know from this podcast, I'm incredibly passionate about hip hop music and hip hop culture and not just hip hop but pretty much all aspects of African American culture I'm very passionate about, you know? And you know I get quite emotional and passionate about art and creativity. That's my vibe. And I grew up listening to to hip-hop, you know? When I was a young kid, I would have had Ice-T, Public Enemy, um, Ice Cube. But growing up in fucking Limerick, where, you know, I didn't, I didn't see... I'd have been listening to Ice-T fucking six years before even knowing what he looked like, you know? I would have had a few liner notes... I didn't even have liner notes, no, I was just given a cassette. So I just had the music. This, you know, speaking about this, these alien ghettos of America where, and the struggle of that black people face. I only had it through audio. There was no internet for me to look it up. There wasn't really hip-hop magazines. Hip-hop wasn't being shown on, on television. Hip-hop videos, not in the 90s when I was a kid. Um... I didn't have a... All I had was this... these This music and these tapes. That was it. Just audio. But Spike Lee's films... They gave me a, a, a visual... Uh, a visual and cultural context... For what rappers were speaking about. And it was hugely valuable to me. And... It gave me a nice... A, a good critical eye... For rap music at a young age. Because thing is with gangster rap is there's a slight performative element to gangster rap where it tends to highlight in particular something like NWA to highlight only the negative aspects of urban African American culture whereas a Spike Lee film like Clockers Clockers is about we'll say gang life in Brooklyn right but what Clockers does and what makes it so amazing is the central character in Clockers who's a dealer he's got an ulcer and he has to drink milk of magnesia all day because it's like the opposite of glamorising the gangster it's like yes he's a gangster yes he's selling crack yes he walks around with a gun but the stress of his job is so great that he has a fucking ulcer like some prick working in a bank and seeing the the humanity of that at a young age um was very important to me in kind of adding a kind of a pinch of salt and a cultural context as to why certain gangster rap was the way it, way it was if you get me um also as well last week's podcast was about the origins of hip-hop in the bronx uh spike lee fucking grew up you know through that he's from brooklyn he was present when in new york when hip-hop was happening and the disco was happening. So Spike got to speak a little bit on that. So yeah, I went to Hotel in Soho to interview him. Where he was doing many, many interviews. The past three days he's been here doing non-stop interviews. Before I went in with my fucking shitty podcast set up. Jonathan Ross was in before me interviewing him. Um, My ma, who's, my ma's in her late 70s. My man got it into her head that I was interviewing Bruce Lee. So, 
and she also made me a bunch of she knew she, she thought I was interviewing Bruce Lee but it doesn't matter she knew I was interviewing someone who to me was a fucking hero you know so she got that much regardless of whether she thinks it's Bruce Lee or Spike Lee but she made me uh, a lot of scones a lot of scones with raisins in them and demanded that the, demanded that these be given to Bruce Lee so for the first half of the interview with Spike he's chewing on shit that's my mother's scones so apologies for uh, if, if that's annoying he enjoyed them so have I anything else to say yeah Black Klansman go and see it um, fucking great film you won't be disappointed very entertaining and thank you to Spike for doing the interview and for sponsoring one or two podcasts as well. A couple of episodes are sponsored by Spike. So here is the interview. You can't. One last thing. Uh, the interview is it's quite harsh on Irish-Americans. And just so you know, I'm referring specifically to racist Irish-Americans. Um, if you are not a racist Irish-American, because there's many Irish-Americans that listen to this podcast, fine people. If you're not a racist, then when I say Irish-American, it's not about you. This, When I say Irish-American in this, I'm referring to racist fucking assholes who hate black people, but at the same time will talk about the oppression that their grandparents faced in Ireland and drink Guinness and all that performative shit while being shitheads. That's who that's about. But if you're a, a decent fucking Irish American who isn't a racist scumbag, then it's not about you. I just felt the need. I don't want to sully the interview if you're an Irish American listening. You know? And if you're a racist, you probably don't listen to the podcast anyway. So you still live in Limerick? I do, yeah. Yeah? And you commute to London? I commute to London, yeah. But with the internet, like, I can do all my work at home. Like, my main thing is this podcast. I record it in Limerick. And I don't really need to leave, you know, and I like it. Um, actually, one thing. How long have you been doing your podcast? Only a year. Yeah. Only a year, yeah. And, and you're the, you're a hit now, huh? It's doing all right, yeah. I God got bless. Like, thank you very much. Um, What's I, your subject matter? You're just interesting people, or what? No, I mainly like last week. Actually, what I did was um, because it was the 45 years of the history of hip of the birth of hip hop two weeks ago. What I did a podcast in the on, South Bronx. In the South Bronx, yes. but what I did the podcast on was, I was just researching, and I found an article in the New York Times, and it was dated in October 1973, and the headline of the article was, "Landlord accused of anti-black racism." Right, mm -hmm. and it turns out that was Donald Trump when he was 27. Yeah. So what is I, I did is I looked at. The fact that Trump was doing this in Brooklyn and Queens. Right. And then... Him I and his father. Him and his dad, yeah. Right. But I found a kind of a, a connection between that and the fact that Cool Herc's parties, a lot of them were rent parties. So I was kind of going, Donald Trump and his kind of racist policies are could have been a contributing factor to the birth of hip-hop. I wouldn't go that far, sir. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a fucking... It's a reach. It's a reach. That's a big reach. Yeah. Um, one thing, actually, one thing I'd like to ask you about, because I was like, I was looking at New York in the 70s, okay? And in a, such a small period of time, you have the birth of uh, disco in, in Greenwich Village coming out of, like, we'll say, the Stonewall Riots. Then you've got... All the year 77, which I made a film about that year. 
Summer Sam. Summer fucking Sam. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Um. Then. Yeah, the blackout. The birth. The blackout. Yeah. The birth of punk. Right. Uh, that would have been. Was that Hell's Kitchen? CBGB's whereabouts was that? Yes. And then you've got the birth of hip hop. Right. Now. That's New in the Bronx. That, and punk that was, was in. Was pointing out. Yeah. In Manhattan, Lower Manhattan. Like. New York was in a bad time, but that that was when New York was. Uh, was it in broke. debt? Yeah, it was in broke. Right. Like. Can you give your like? What, why? Why did these three amazing art forms separately at the same time happen in this small area? Like, w- w- what's your read on that? Timing. Everything is timing. I mean, I'm 61 years young, so I've got to come to believe that very few things happen by happenstance. So it's just a combustible time. University was broke. You had the blackout. Yeah. The birth of uh, disco. That was a summer. Summer '77 was first summer disco. You had hip hop on the rise. You had Summer Sam, the psychopath, that was killing people. It was that summer was so hot. I mean, it was like it was so hot. And our and uh, who knew that later I'll make a film about that summer, Summer Sam. But I think it was one of the glorious days, uh, you know, the glory days in New York City. And here's the thing between now, back then, young artists like David Byrne, Madonna, people like that, young artists were drawn to New York. Young artists can't afford to come to New York anymore. Yeah. They got to go to Detroit. You could buy a house for $5 in Detroit. They go to Detroit. They go to Portland, they go to Seattle, they go to uh in Texas. Where is that? Houston? Not Houston. Oh, where? what's the hipster one? Uh I know the one you're thinking of. Uh South by Southwest is there. Yes. It's where you University of Texas is. I'm blanking on it. Anyway. <laughs> so am I <laughs> Josh is at eight. And I've always felt that it was the it was an influx of young artists that made New York, New York great, and young artists can't come, afford to live in New York anymore. Yeah, it, it's it's horrible. Um, did you like what, when you were a kid growing up around that? Did you get involved in either the disco scene or the hip hop scene? Were you going to like? Did you go to any of these early hip hop parties or the parties were in the street, block parties, literally in the streets, in the street. They hook up the, the turntable, the speakers, to the, the street lamps, and it's a block party. In fact, this coming Saturday, we have my ninth annual Michael Brooklyn Loves Michael Jackson block party. Yeah. We've been doing it for nine years. We do it for Prince. Three years. So a block party, that's part of summertime, put the music out, dance, and have fun. So even before Free. before hip hop was a thing, this 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 was happening. Like, what? When did it start? Like block parties, hip hop, and block parties, same thing. They but, start at the same time. When did it start getting um like a name? When, when when did something happen to these block parties where you were going? Something new was happening. This 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 is a new thing. Or did you? Was it even no, noticeable? It was terms. It was on the term of hip hop. Hip hop. What is hip hop? The foundation hip hop is graffiti. Mm-hmm. Breakdancing, MCing, and DJing. Mm-hmm. 
those are the foundations of hip-hop. And hip-hop was born in the South Bronx by Puerto Rican, young black Puerto Rican and black males. So it's amazing that out of this one section of the Bronx, predominantly people of color has grown this knows how many billion dollar industry that's all over the world and, and uh, back then those guys were just doing it for fun no one could dream how much money could be made from back then how do you feel about how it has been monetized do you feel that has it been monetized uh, oh that's oh, you know it's been monetized it's but I mean it, has that money been do you feel that we'll say the people that originated people of color that originated have they benefited from it or do you feel that it's been a monetarily appropriated you know, in a different it's, direction it's like anything happens in the record industry you know the record company you know they make the money but I think that artists today are a lot smarter with their money because mm-hmm. a lot of those pioneers from hip hop era they're broke mm-hmm. uh, yeah not doing very well mm-hmm. but no one knew the money we made for you were just doing it for fun to yeah. express yourself. Yeah. Would you think that, like, out of that New York recession, that boredom was a, a driving factor in expression? No, I don't think boredom didn't do it. You just... For me, I don't think boredom comes out of... I don't think expression comes out of boredom. I think that to express yourself is something that we have all all we have within us that all humans have within us and yeah. we just have different ways of, of uh, displaying that yeah I don't think there were guys who were rapping or scratching or spinning their head because they were bored they were they knew that this was something new an art form yeah um, your own process as an artist has that changed much over the years it's changed because technology has changed. I when I edit, I used to edit on a flatbed. Now people now you have avids, uh, you have digital stuff, but the basics have same. The basics have same, which is uh, don't take any shortcuts. Do the work, do the work, and keep building your craft. Mm-hmm. Craft for me, craft is is so much, and and the, so. I'm going my fourth decade as a filmmaker, and I'm a cinephile. I, besides, in addition to making films, I'm a professor of film. I'm a tenured professor of film at New York University Graduate Film School, mm-hmm. where Ang Lee and I were classmates, same class, class of 82. And I just love cinema. I love teaching it. I love doing it. And I say this all the time, I'm, I feel I'm very blessed because a lot of people don't have or never get the opportunity to do what they love. Yeah. A lot of people on this God's earth go to their grave haven't worked at a job they slayed that all their life. So when you can make when you can make a living doing what you love, you won. That's my That's opinion. it. Yeah. Um what did Bob Bob Dylan said something similar. Bob Dylan said that um if you get up in the morning and you go to bed at night, but in the middle you did that thing that you love, then you're a success. Bob Dylan. Yeah. I'm with you, Bob. My Bob, my father played with Bob Dylan. No way. My father, at one point, was a top jazz bassist. Excuse me, a top folk bassist. Played with Bob Dylan, 
Gordon Lightfoot, Joan Baez, Judy Collins, Peter. You know that song, Peter Paul, Perry Puth, Magic Dragon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My father's on bass. Fucking hell. Yes, Bill Lee. Was that New York based? Was he? Yeah, so, yeah, New York, New York. And that was down in, was that down in Greenwich Village when all that yeah, shit a lot was of, happening? Yes, a lot of clubs there, the recording studios. And Bob Dylan went electric. Everybody else did. Yeah. And my father refused to his day. has never plucked a note on a Fender bass. Really? He's traditionist. Traditionist. So here's the thing, though. My father had four, five children and a wife. Yeah. I'm the oldest. So when he refused to play Fender bass, my mother had to work. Yeah. Because my father, he let us starve. He put his fucking principles ahead of money. I know, but sir. <laughs> he has five children. Yeah. Little children. Mm-hmm. So my mother had to start the work. She started to teach because we would have starved. Fucking hell. So, so I'm conflicted about my father. Yeah. Because I understand his principles. Yeah. But you have five kids. I know. Just plug it in. What? Just plug it in. Plug in the bass, man. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. But it ended up a good story because my father ended up doing the scores for my films. My father did okay. all my NYU films. My father did the score. She's got to have it. School days. And the score for Do the Right Thing. And Mo Better Blues. Brilliant. So we ended up working together once I became a filmmaker. And but he would not. He called it tone as is. He was not going to play any instrument. That was electrified. Couldn't do it. Fucking hell. I, I mean, can't even. I'm talking about hardcore hardliner. Yeah. Acoustic. Yeah. Everything had to be acoustic. In fact, we perform, people get mad because he wouldn't put up a, he wouldn't put up a microphone on his bass. Uh, that's pretty exceptional. <laughs> hardcore. And that's just old school. But I mean, there's so much like it, with double basses as well. There's like crazy tradition around them. Like, isn't you can inherit strings and stuff. Yeah. Like, you keep strings on a double bass for like a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. Whereas with an electric bass, that's a bad thing. You got to change the strings. And in fact, when so we were little, we had this. We, we had a record player, so we had to sneak. We we playing the Beatles, and Motown. He would say. Turn that bad music off. It's okay, Daddy. So we turn it down lower <laughs> so he can hear it. What would he have thought of, uh, we'll say, someone like Miles Davis? Who was? Oh, he, he knew Miles. But did he, did, like Miles was, was fusing, we'll say, the traditional nah, with the more he, modern but, stuff. But he always had, even when Miles was elected, we had, we had, a, we had, they had respect for each other. In fact, I did a music video for Miles called Tutu. And Miles Davis was notorious for like cursing you. You curse your ass out. You yeah. Say, you say, Spike. I'm not going to call you a motherfucker because I know your father. I dig your father. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, true story. Fucking hell. So Did he know Miles Harvey? gave me some slack because he knew my father, respected my father. And what about like Harvey Hancock? He knew all those cats. Harvey was from the Bronx, wasn't he? I I think Chicago. I don't know. But all those guys, even now, when they see me, they say, yeah, you know, tell, make sure. How's your father doing? Tell my father. Tell your father I said, okay. So wow. he's still... But people knew him. He was one of the top. You could play his ass off. We just yeah. wouldn't do it. <laughs> he wasn't going to be electric. And would he have been pure jazz? Would he have been interested in blues as well? Or Oh, yeah. It all comes from the blues. So yeah. I mean, he, 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 he was. It all comes from that. That's and is your dad from New York? or No, my father was born in Snow, Alabama. And so I was born in Atlanta. 
I, I grew up, moved to Brooklyn. My family moved to Brooklyn when I was like two or three years old. But uh, that's, uh, and my mother died when I was in college. If you see, if you see, if you see this film, look at this film called Crooklyn. You haven't seen it. It's about. Oh, I know Crooklyn. It's, it's yeah. That's my family. That film's about. Wow. Yeah. Fucking hell! I didn't know that. Yeah. So, but the little girl is that little girl you? No, that was my my sister. Okay. She was the only girl out of five children. Cool. Um. I got some of the questions I have are from the people on the internet, right? So some of them are strange questions. Mm. One question is, can can you ask Spike if he remembers drinking with an Irish lad in Tokyo? No. No. Okay. So to that person on the internet, who? No, they might be telling the truth. I just don't remember. You just don't remember it, yeah. I remember. Well, he remembers drinking with Spike Lee in Tokyo. Well, if I did, it might have been one beer because I don't really drink. No, you don't like drink. We have a we have a there's a line. Have you ever seen the film Twenty Fifth Hour? I haven't seen that one, no. There's a line where Barry Pepper, Barry Pepper's Irish, and the guy says, will you stop drinking? He says, are you drunk? He says, I can't get drunk. I'm Irish. Yeah, that's, we call that functioning <laughs> alcoholism back in Ireland. You guys can knock it back. We do. We have, uh, our culture is to develop a tolerance for it, which uh, in other, in other. How old you had your first drink? Maybe 12 or 13. Guinness? Um, whiskey No whatever's going what, You remember what it was? Probably some shit beer Some shit like Just really cheap beer um, Not the good stuff? No I, li- I like Guinness As I got older I got to I got to develop An appreciation for it But A, a, deep, no, a deep appreciation? Yeah I do I, I very very much I, I like a drink you know um, You're Irish Yeah of course Is that stereotypical to say that? Uh, look it, I'm it, asking it, you. That's the thing It's like it is, but it's also a huge part of our culture. Mm-hmm. It's like if if a Jamaican dude, if you say Jamaican dude is smoking weed, it's right, like right. yes, it is a stereotype, but they tend to smoke a lot of weed, and it. it's the same with the Irish. I think what it is is um, like if a British person said it, it's it's when there's negative connotations around yeah. it. It's like you're, I'm you you can't. Ha- I'm all that's why I come from a place of positivity. So I hope you didn't take that as a stereotype. No, yeah, cool, um, good, right? We yeah, good, of course, we're good, yeah. I think what it is is um. Yeah, if it was like a British person saying, you can't work here, you'll get drunk, then it's bad. Right, right, but right. if it's someone going, you're Irish, you like to drink, let's party, right. then it's good, but it's two sides of the same What is the situation, kind. educate me, because I'm, I'm glad we're doing this. What is the situation today between Ireland and the UK? Um, politically, it's, it's, it's 800 years of colonization. Yeah, still, yeah. So, See that word again? Colonization. There you go. And which Britain knows a lot about. Yeah, Britain knows an awful lot about. It. Even look, the wall behind, I was only pointing out here, that's Orientalist. You know, that's their colonizing of both. Yeah, you just to describe to the listeners, it's in, in and, the end. In India, you had to get the tea. But you've Chinese, Chinese things in there too. And you've got a peacock. It's mixed in all the elements of the Orient into one. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about uh, uh, the wall in this room. The right? wall in this room, yeah. <laughs> is. Uh, an Orientalist motif, and it's just it's pure British colonialism. But it's one actually one thing I wanted to raise with you is Irish Americans. Now, Irish have a weird relationship with the British, but what Irish people also have a strange relationship with is Irish Americans, in particular how There's Irish friction between Irish Americans and Irish people. Yeah, yeah. because about what? How racist they are. Um, oh, Irish Americans? Yeah. Woo! Ah, come on. 
I said, woo. Yeah. I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. Um, There's been very even. I'll give you an example. Boston. Yeah. Irish Americans. And historically, there's been friction between the black people Very in Boston bad. and the Irish Americans in Boston. I mean, that's like, for me, that when you said that, that jumped to my mind immediately. Or the, we say one, the New York draft riots. One thing, when I saw um, Scorsese's film, what the fuck's it called? Gangs of New York? Gangs of New York. I knew the history. They left a lot of it out. He whitewashed loads of it. They shot it, but they cut it out the film. Really? Yeah, they shot all that stuff with the... I'm uh, I'm going to be interviewing a, a woman soon. Her name is Bernadette Devlin, and mm. she was she wasn't a, a member of the IRA, but she would have been, we'll say, on that side. Mm-hmm. And in the 1970s, she when the Irish Americans gave support to Ireland in the we'll say the war, the insurgency against Britain, they brought over a lot of activists from Ireland to New York. So mm-hmm. all the Irish Americans were going, "Oh, we'll support you, we'll support you." But Bernadette Devlin went to New York and said to the Irish Americans my people are not the Irish Americans my people are the blacks and the Chicanos and you are treating the blacks and Chicanos the way that we are being treated at home and the Irish Americans didn't that like that did not go over well did it no the mayor of New York gave her the key to the city who she, uh, Pop, I, I, Giuliani? Don't know, I don't know who the fuck it was no this would have been Bloomberg 71 or 72 Abe Beam probably um she took, or John Lindsay, maybe one of anyone. She took the key in New York and she went to Harlem and she gave it to the Black Panthers. Yeah? Yeah. So I'm going to be interviewing She's her She's a soon. guest? She's a guest on this podcast. Please yeah. tell her Spike Lee. She'd be thrilled to find that tell out, yeah. But another thing I would like to add, the thing about New York was very strange because immigrants came to America through New York, Ellis Island. And so, right away, the groups took that thing. So, sanitation, Irish going to have that. Yeah. No, no. The Italians had that. The, the we teachers, had the cops. The teachers, yeah, the, the teachers were Jewish. But the cops yeah. were Irish. And so, that contributed to the friction between the Irish-American community in New York and with the African-American. Because the, the Irish were the cops. Yeah. Um, there's a fantastic book called How the Irish Became White which is it shows that the when, when the Irish were coming to America in the 17th or 18th century they came from they were can I just say this they were considered niggas pretty because much whoever whoever was the latest the last group in you were at the bottom yeah and it became you could say maybe the, the American story immigrants where you try to the Jews came Irish came, Italian Americans, and they're trying to. So, whoever just comes behind you, yeah. <laughs> and the Irish came from a system called the penal laws, which would be similar. It would be very similar to Jim Crow, right. that type of system. And when the Irish came to America from this, you know, knowing nothing other than oppression, that's the first time they came across the color line. Right. And what they say is that the Irish earned their whiteness in American society by acts of brutality against the black community. Let me ask you a question. What is black Irish? Black I Irish. I understood that term. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's well, it, 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 right? it can mean two things. In Ireland, what black Irish means is uh, the Spanish tried to help us fight the British like 200 years ago. So there was a Spanish ship called the, the Armada right. was... Um, 
it was it was bolster it, it, it got shipwrecked in Ireland so it's people who have black hair in Ireland are called the black Irish okay the other thing it can mean is there's a theory that the Irish people genetically we come from like Morocco and Algeria right and then in America I think what it means is we'll say people from like the five points 200 years ago yeah. where they're both sharing the same place in the intermarriage with with the, the, the yeah former slaves right but like what I say to Irish Americans when I see Irish Americans now because we're very embarrassed by Irish Americans especially when we see people like you know all, Ryan all these fucking names in the White House and Irish they're all fucking Irish the worst cons are fucking Irish in America and what we get pissed, I know it's all about it like that it is but for us it's embarrassing because our kind of thing as a, as a society is that we know oppression as we people colonize. Yeah, we were colonized. How many years? 300 years, right? Yeah, 800 years. So for us, it's very... How much? 800? 800 years, yeah. Shit. And so it's annoying for us to kind of see it. No, we get pissed off when we see them calling themselves Irish. Because what we remind them of is there was a guy called Daniel O'Connell in 1840. And he's known as the Irish Emancipator. He emancipated us. And he used to bring Frederick Douglass to Ireland. What? Yes. And, and Frederick Douglass was in Limerick. My man, you're, you're educating Spike. I'm telling you, I did, yeah. not, I did not know that Frederick Douglass came to Ireland. He did. Damn! And this is what you need to say to an Irish American the next time you see an Irish American talking shit. So he, uh, what do you think of St. Patrick's Day parade? I mean, it's it's good, but I mean, again, it's... it's 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 it's. It, I mean, black Americans don't like St. Patrick's Day parade because it's just another white people doing their white shit, isn't it? Getting drunk. Yeah. Well, again, it, it's it's Irish Americans kind of almost appropriating our culture in a way as well because they're becoming a caricature, and then we look at it going, "That's kind of silly." Can I ask you a question? Is there this is what I'm hearing from you? Is there is this a dialogue that's happening now between mm-hmm. Irish Americans and big time and, and, and national? Yeah, Irish? because. Where? On the internet, because yeah. we, we haven't, we've never really seen it before. We've never known how actually racist they are. They've become, they became the overseer. That's mm. that's what they did. Like, I was thinking. So of fucking, what? What do Irish Americans say when native Irish people say, "You blokes"? They don't oh, know what oh, to say. What? They don't know what to say. What? You say you are racist. They don't. They don't know what to say. They say. They have um, nothing to come back on. They've, there's two things they bring up. Now, the first thing, what I say to them, and this is what pisses them off, I bring up when Daniel O'Connell used to bring Frederick Douglass, the purpose of that visit was, this is 1840, so Irish people, dark poor, had never seen a black person. There was no, fu- no newspapers, nothing. So Daniel O'Connell would bring Frederick Douglass on tours of Ireland, and he would say, this man here, and they'd go, wow, I've never seen someone like that before. And he would say, I know most of the year going to America next year. When you go to America, if you see people like him, that's a common struggle. You must join with these people, these black what? people. What's yes. his guy's name? Daniel O'Connell. And him and Frederick Douglass toured Ireland and I he gotta, said... I gotta, get on, I gotta get on... Yeah. Google. Oh man, it'd be some story. I'm gonna give you my email. Yeah, do. So please send me information. I will. Because um, what you're telling me, I do not know. It's an incredible story. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to do actually in Limerick is um, the, the place where, da- where Frederick Douglass spoke is a restaurant and I'm trying to get a plaque put there to commemorate yeah. it. But Daniel O'Connell said... The same restaurant? Yeah. Dan- it used to be like um, like a church. Yeah, yeah. So Daniel O'Connell said to the Irish people, if you go to America next year and you do not help men who look like this, you can no longer consider yourself Irish. That's what I say to the Irish Americans. So well, you, what do they say? Fuck you? I say, <laughs> you went to America 
you instead of aligning yourself with other oppressed people you chose to find the colour line and find your whiteness by oppressing black people mm. therefore you gave up your Irishness at that moment so you're a yank you're not an Irish person they go fucking ape shit they can't ah! handle it Have you heard the Irish slaves, mate? Uh, educate me again, sir. So that this is another huge dialogue between Irish people and Irish Americans. This thing has happened in the past four or five years where Irish people will say to black people, my ancestors were slaves too. And it's, it's ahistorical. What happened was Irish people were sent, it was about 250,000 Irish people, were sent to the colonies of Barbados and Jamaica. That's why Jamaican accents sometimes sounds a little bit Irish. Right. But the thing is, Irish people were sent as indentured servants. Mm. They worked on the plantation, they worked alongside African slaves, but they could work for their freedom in maybe 15, 20 years. Right. They were not chattel. There was no generational fucking system that's still still seeing the effects of today. Mm-hmm. That's what the Irish Americans don't get. They don't. They go well. My ancestors were were slaves too. So, but essentially, what they're making is um, a fucking very racist biological argument to suggest that they had the same struggle and their whiteness and superiority. But is there what, was intermarriage uh, between that between Irish and and, and uh, yeah. There was intermarriage, but often what happened was the uh, Ireland as a nation never engaged in the slave trade as a nation. Right. But those indentured servants that went to Barbados, what do you think they did when they got their 15 years freedom? Mm-hmm. They went and became fucking slave owners. They became the overseers. Right. And then those dudes, actually, this will interest you. The people that would have oppressed the Irish, we refer to them now as orange men okay they're the big thing in Ireland is that if you were oppressed you were a native Irish Catholic but who was oppressing them were from England and Scotland Protestants right and their leader was called uh, King William King Billy so a lot of these oppressors of the Irish moved to Mississippi the southern states they were the Scotch Irish they were essentially British were they part were they confederacy yes but all their names were fucking Billy because of King William that's what a fucking hillbilly is uh-huh. and that's what hillbilly comes from yeah what these cons that were oppressing oh my, oh I'm my telling God. you King my William can I say this as we I, stay in New York you, you've been dropping signs I look <laughs> my man's dropping signs ladies and gentlemen I tell you not, me shit, I never I just found out the origin of the word hillbilly yeah <laughs> it's because of King William um, th- those the, the people that would have been oppressing the Irish they went it's. I'm not going to say they founded the fucking clan because that's a lot of a reach, but the culture that the clan yeah, would have come yeah, from... Close. It is quite close right. because we had the, the Irish penal laws that went... That was studied and became Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. It had been done before, as right. is always the system. But... That's Can what you say it again? It was done before. So it's just, it's, it's just repeating the same fucking system. It's, again. And... Like, like uh, divine and conquer. Divide same and conquer. Yeah. It's the same fucking same thing. Shit. Um another thing that might interest you. Like the phrase do you dig, you dig. Yeah. That comes from the Irish word on dig into, which means understand. It's from the five points. So the five points in New York you would have had 
native Irish speakers mixing with freed slaves. Right. So uh, some words that are in African-American vernacular, you'll find the roots in the Irish Gaelic. Oh, my God. Digging, yeah. You dig, that's what's, that's my shit right there. Yeah, you're, you're saying an I, you're, it's, that's an Irish word. I'm digging to. <laughs> but this is what kind of... But you know what, though? My grandmother lived to be 100 years old. She used to say that her grandfather was an Irishman. Mm-hmm. You know where she was born? Where? Dublin, Georgia. Yeah. Swear That's that weird. God. Yeah, I know. It's weird My shit. My grandmother, who lived 100 years old, put me through college and film school. She was born in Dublin, Georgia. But here's the thing, Spike. You know if it's called Dublin, that means it was one of the bad ones that did it. Because a poor Irish man did not get the name of town. <laughs> Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like um, Baltimore. Baltimore literally means in Irish Balia T. Moore, which is the big house. So, like, it's. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Balia. More science. Baltimore. Break it down again. So, Balia is like home, T is house, and Moore is big. So, Balia T. Moore. The big house. Baltimore. And you know who lived in the big house? Mazza. There you go. Yeah. So this is what kind of How old are you with my ass? You I do a lot of reading. I like my history. There you go. I like my history. Why don't you know we got a president and this guy doesn't read a book. I know he's a fucking idiot, yeah. Yeah. Give um, me give me an Irish word for what's the Irish equivalent for a motherfucker? Uh Amadon. Amadon it would mean fool. Yeah. Amadon. I like motherfucker better. Motherfucker's <laughs> nice, yeah. Um <laughs> But this, this, this shit is why the engineer, she's dying laughing over here. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you know what? If you want to laugh, let it out. It doesn't make it make it good because you're yeah, dying like laughing. you're worried that like I give a fuck if her laugh is on it. Give a shit. <laughs> let it out because there's some funny shit here. <laughs> but uh, this is why we have this. The Irish have this complicated relationship with Irish Americans because if you know your fucking history, you know that there was. For a small time, a shared understanding and a shared, an opportunity for solidarity. Mm-hmm. That and we did not do that. We basically said, "You see it now today." Even like we in Ireland, we've only been getting immigrants for the past ten years because we've been a poor country. Mm-hmm. So a lot of immigrants, maybe Polish people, if a Polish man wants to be more Irish, the best thing he can do is give out about an Arab or give out about a Muslim or, or complain about them. And that's what the Irish did. It's the did. same old thing. It's uh, how do you identify with the oppressor or oppress who they're, who's being oppressed? Mm-hmm. So what's the what's the vibe in Ireland now then? We're just recovering from a recession. Um, it's changing. It's uh, we. Let me, th- let me ask. No, let me ask another way. What's the vibe amongst young people? Young people in Ireland are they? Tr- trying to come to London they, they want to get out what yeah we're always immigrating we're always leaving you know that's we've got one of the biggest diasporas in the world so we're always leaving um, it's because, doing, because what's wrong that people gotta go no future or yeah no future I mean we're a small country uh, we never colonised anyone so we don't have this massive load of fucking wealth <laughs> and as well it's post-colonial we don't have a true independence we keep looking when the British left us we gave all our power to the Catholic Church and that was a huge amount of abuse as well we never got a chance to talk about the fucking so film does, does a Catholic Church run 
used to. Now it's gone. Now when we found out that the the level of abuse that was being done, now we've all turned our backs. It's quite a a liberal country. We legalised gay marriage, we've got abortion, things like that, which wouldn't have happened in Ireland maybe 20 years ago, you know? Mm -hmm. So So is there a progressive move? Yeah. There is? Big time. Good. Can I ask you one question about the film? Please do. I loved it. I absolutely fucking enjoyed it. Um, What was the overall message you wanted? Because it is, it's not 100% fact. There's elements of fiction there and I can tell that it was a clear narrative, especially... Mm -hmm. The way that you portrayed Adam, Adam Driver's character. Yes. You made a point of letting us know he's Jewish and even though he's white, these KKK cunts want to kill him too. What's the thinking behind that? What well, Jews are a close second to black people. Yeah. <laughs> as far as the Klan goes. But as because you finished it with Charlottesville... Were you looking for like a message of inclusion rather than division? Did you was that a message for white allies? Oh yes. To go, you're next, so you don't get to. Just I mean, be- hate is hate, and uh, what happened in Charlottesville on August twelfth? We hadn't we hadn't started to shoot the film yet. Yeah, we didn't start till September. Charlottesville happened August twelfth. So it was an afterthought to kind of throw that in. No, it was before. Okay. Charlottesville happened before and so when it happened I knew I had I, even though we, we, we not commenced shooting I knew it had an ending because of Charlottesville yeah and there's a history though if we go back to I had a, a guy interviewed me today he's wearing a t-shirt of John Brown yeah who, who led the revolt at Harpens Ferry a white man so there's, there's a history of black and white people who are progressive coming together it's, it's not new I mean John Brown, I was like 18, who knows when. So it happened to the civil rights movement. Yeah. During the during the the, 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 the 60s. So, and historically, especially in the 60s, you really had a tight collision between Jews and blacks, which is not the same as today, but back then it was. So it, it wasn't far-fetched for Juan Storr's character to be Jewish, plus add another layer. Run, uh, Adam, Driver's, Adam Driver's character is playing the white Ron Stallworth. Yeah. So he's code switching there. Also, he's Jewish. Yeah. So he has two things that, that he's, you know, hiding from uh, the Klan. And what, what's, what's your response to, we'll say, some criticism has said that y- you went a bit easy on the police, that you should have gone harder on the police. What, what do you say to that? That here's the thing though. This film is a true story, and Ron Stallworth, I can't make him out to be Kwame Kwame Ture, which we've seen in the yeah. film. That's not him. Yeah. But we do see. There's a scene where he says, uh, he asks him about this guy Landis. Like, yeah, he killed a black kid, but we we're not gonna do nothing about it, you know, because that'd be breaking the the uh, the blue wall. And then what people are missing is that when we, when we show that altercation, August 12th, I'm going to use an Irish word, it was a Donnybrook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Where were the cops? Yeah. yeah. Where was law enforcement? Yeah. There was no way around. And I've been very critical, critical of police. We saw that. In, we saw that in Malcolm X. We saw that and do the right thing. But yeah, I didn't have to hammer that point already. When people just turn on television, and see 
stories about black people being shot in the streets left and right. So I'm very, you know, at at peace with what we do with this film. I think that, uh, on the other hand, I've never been the one that said I hate police. Mm-hmm. We need police. Yeah. We just need people who can't be, you know, kill people and not think about it because of the color of their skin. So with, with my body of work, especially amongst black folks, you know, they think that Spike Lee should do this. Yeah. And Spike Lee do that. And and my thing is like, there's 45 million African Americans. We're not one monolithic group. And it's okay if I do something that you don't like. Yeah. That's it. So you're comfortable with criticism. You're able oh, to, I'm, I'm very Spike comfortable. Lee. I mean, I've been at it 32 years, so, you know. After How were while, you with criticism when you were younger? Did you find it affected your creativity? No, it didn't affect my creativity. What it did was get me mad, which is like a a, a, a device that what what Trump, what those guys do, they get you, lose your focus. That's what I mean. Yeah. Why am I worried about what this person said? I, well, I should be like, I learned it later on, but I didn't know at the beginning. Like, I was like, Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Now, mm-hmm. I just keep stepping. Well done, good all man. Right. I'm giving my email, right? Because yeah. I really, I want you to send me all the... I'm going to give you a copy of my book too, if you don't please. mind. You got it on you? I do, yeah. You, can you sign it for me, please? I would love to sign a fucking book. Yeah. This is the best interview I had this trip. Thanks very is much. It? Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's not bullshit, that's, that's real. Thank you, Spike. No, no, no. Thank you. My my brother. Thank you. Do it again, all right? All right. Okay. And like that, he was gone. And... He's fucking... He's minder. Hold on, my microphone is acting a prick. I've got an awful setup here in this hotel room. So like his he, yeah his minder came in, and started looking at the watch. We only had forty minutes together. Um, but we clicked, and I tell you what, lads, and I know by the look in his fucking eyes, that was a man who wanted to go for a pint. He wanted to go for a fucking pint. I know he said, he you know he he doesn't drink that much. That is a man. By the end of that conversation, with so much fucking crack. He wanted to go for a pint, and I nearly chased him down the hall and said it to him like we were just across the road from fucking Soho Theatre, which is, that's my stomping ground, you know? I'm well looked after in Soho Theatre. Could have gotten us a snug and a fucking pints for free all night and continued the conversation. But he had to go. He's fucking, Spike is doing non-stop interviews for the next two days um, to promote the fucking film and I'm just fucking sickened sickened pints with Spike Lee off the Soho Theatre get a few in then fucking drag him off to an IRA bar in Cricklewood see some trad that's the evening I would have wanted because we had fucking crack we clicked and uh, it was a pleasure it was magnificent so, alright, that's that's it. That's the fucking podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, 
we didn't have a chance for... We'll do the ocarina pause, all right? You better believe I brought the ocarina to London with me. So we'll do our little ocarina pause, if there's any digital adverts for the British Army. All right? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. that was the ocarina pause and also if you enjoyed the podcast um please support it through the patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast um i do about five hours of content for free a month if you feel like you know if you're listening to that and going geez that was good crack i, I would buy blind by a punt a pint or a cup of coffee if you would feel that way, then the way to do it is through the Patreon page, and that supports this podcast. And if you can't afford it, that's fine. You can listen for free. That's 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 how it works. Um. Anything else I wanted to say? Yeah. So in in that podcast, we touched we touched a lot upon uh, Irish and racism, and Irish Americans and racism, and I mentioned. There's a few things in there actually that historically, few things historically that are a bit. Now I've since I've since mailed Spike Lee with some information with the history and shit. But there's a few things that are probable but not confirmed. So on digging to turning into dig, that again probable but not confirmed. It's one of those things that's hard to completely test. Um, orange men you know being called William turning into hillbillies again highly probable hard to confirm and anything else in there that's about it but the other thing I spoke about was you know how the Irish people you know as a nation the Irish you know we as a country we never got involved in the slave trade so a lot of Irish people think, oh, brilliant, we, we get a free pass then. Do you know? No white guilt for us. We didn't do anything to anyone. Well, historically, yeah, we were too busy being colonised to do anything particularly mean to someone else, which we absolutely would have done 
if we weren't being colonized because that's what you know that's what humans do humans are just shitheads who colonize other people if they can but we don't get a free pass because currently in Ireland there is a very shameful system known as direct provision and direct provision is it's a way for Ireland to meet international laws for accommodating asylum seekers in the most minimal way possible and you end up with people of colour um, essentially kind of just fucking imprisoned in this really shitty system that's happening in Ireland now with quite a bit of secrecy around it and I've personally I think direct provision is going to be it's going to be our Magdalene laundries in 10 years some dark shit is going to come out but what I would ask of you um find out direct people living in direct provision they get I think it's something like 19 euros a, a week and there's a lot of kids who grew up and were born in direct provision and these are kids who could have war trauma you know from Afghanistan and shit too but they're going to school they're going to school in September and if you look for your local kind of charity that's helping with refugees um, in Limerick, I believe it's Doris are the people that are doing it. Look at these people and what they're doing at the moment. They're trying to gather um, school bags and school books. They're trying to look for donations for school bags and school books for kids that are in direct provision who are going to be entering national school in September. I urge you to please donate to this cause. And i tell you why. Just think of it this way. If you're three or four years of age maybe five five years of age from Afghanistan or the Congo and you're already different you're already entering school by being different because you're you know you you physically look different and you're culturally different so that's that's tough enough going into school and you're fucking three or four years of age which is when you know we form our personalities now imagine on top of that you're the one who has the shitty books, the shitty clothes, doesn't have a school bag because you're too poor. That's what these kids in direct provision are going to be facing in September. So please help. Find your local direct provision support group and donate school books, book vouchers, school bags, whatever you can. Because what you're doing is you're, you're buying these kids dignity. That's what you're not getting them things. You're giving them the dignity to walk into that schoolyard at the earliest age of their life and to at least feel equal to the other children. Don't let these little kids be the ones with the bag that has holes in it or the books that are clearly fucking third hand and falling apart. Don't let that happen on top of the fact that they're already different because that will shape their personalities um, as they become adults and it will shape those personalities negatively. And that is a system. And if you want to stop that system in 20 years, then intervene now when they're children. And just try your best. First of all, obviously, to fucking end direct provision. But secondly, while it is happening, assist the children that are in direct provision so they have the dignity of being the same as other kids. Please do that. Alright? Um. I leave you go. That was an enjoyable podcast. I love talking to Spike Lee. Um, 
I hope to one day have a fucking pint with him. When he comes to Ireland, that would be magnificent. God bless. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.